Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So in 2021, if there's no check, it's going to be off to the races uh, and we're going to have less democracy as a result. Welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts for Slate. And today we thought we'd have a a, a big, deep look at the two voting rights cases that were decided earlier this week. Gill versus Whitford was the challenge to a Wisconsin partisan gerrymander. That was supposed to be the case of the term. Remember, we talked about it that way in October. And then its little cousin, which was Benisek, involved a Maryland gerrymander. And that was going to give the court cover to decide big, big issues in nonpartisan ways. And... Nothing. No dice. On Monday, the Supreme Court sent Gill back to the lower courts on the theory that the plaintiffs didn't have standing. And in an unsigned opinion, they sent Benisek back saying it was just too soon to decide. So little disappointing. What was going to be a landmark voting rights year is just confusing. So we decided to talk about it today with Paul Smith, who argued Gill for the plaintiffs. Paul is a friend of the show. And on behalf of the Campaign Legal Center, he argued the Wisconsin case before the court way back in October of 2017. Paul, can you even remember October of 2017? Yeah, barely. <laughs> so welcome Our back. hope was that they would decide it by January because that... <laughs> we were hoping to get the new districts this year. Well, so let's start I, I start as though we don't know anything and tell us about political gerrymanders. We know because we've talked about racial gerrymanders on this show. We know that there's constitutional law and their standards. Political gerrymanders are harder uh, because in 2004, Justice Anthony Kennedy set down a marker and he said, someday you shall bring me a political gerrymander case that I can decide. And we have been trying to cough up something that would satisfy him since then. Can you just briefly explain why we thought that the Wisconsin case was a lock to get this thing resolved once and for all? I'm not sure I ever thought it was a lock, but I will explain to you. The, the, the difficulty that Justice Kennedy identified back in 2004 was uh, he started from the proposition that we're not going to try to eradicate politics from the redistricting process. When we have politicians doing the job, it seems silly to uh, tell them, don't even think about the political consequences of the lines. Uh, but he also was of the view that extreme gerrymandering is unconstitutional. Indeed, all of the justices back in the Veith case acknowledged that. The difficulty is is drawing the line between sort of politics as usual and extreme gerrymandering. If you, if you take that approach, you have a problem of standards, of judicially manageable standards of measurement. And so – well, social science went to work and we were back uh, this year with a series of measurements, uh, most prominently this thing called the efficiency gap, which uh, attempted to give them tools to 
differentiate between really extreme gerrymanders uh, and politics as usual by allowing you to attach a number to each map and say this one's a 10. That makes it one of the worst 5% in the last 50 years across the country. You can do those kinds of comparisons once you have these measurement techniques. And the hope was that they would say, okay, we're going to start going after the extreme ones and eventually we'll figure out where the line is. That was the hope. <laughs> and can you just tell us about what this Wisconsin gerrymander, the specific one in this case, what it, the numbers looked like, just to give listeners a sense of, of how really extreme it was? So the Gill case was, a, was and is about the assembly, the lower house in the Wisconsin legislature, uh, which was gerrymandered in 2011 after the Republicans got unilateral control of the state government for the first time in decades in Wisconsin uh, and decided they wanted to hold on to that. Uh, and so they worked very hard. They had these three guys in a, in a locked room for four months making the map more and more extreme and the result was – a map that was made it effectively impossible for them to lose the majority uh, in this decade. Uh, in 2012, the first time the map was used, it was a good Democratic year. The Democrats statewide got about 52 percent of the vote uh, and got less than 40 percent of the seats, 39 percent of the seats. Uh, so a supermajority of seats went to the Republicans with less than half the votes. Two years later, the Republicans got 52 percent of the vote, the same, and they got 64 percent of the seats. So it clearly was made a huge difference, whether you're on the Republican side or the Democratic side, in terms of how you, what your ability was to translate votes into seats. And the, the district court findings where it would take a political earthquake for the Democrats, uh, they'd have to have upwards of 58, 60 percent of the vote statewide, something that never happens in a purple state, uh, to take back the majority. So, so that sounds fairly extreme. And then I think the Supreme Court surprised us by taking Benisek versus Lamone. That was the Maryland case. They already had Gill, as you said. We, we were wondering what was taking so long. And then they took a second case that was argued uh, uh, this spring. And I think that the view was if we take one that's a Republican gerrymander and the other that's the Democrats doing it, and if we take one that's largely equal protection and one that's largely speech, what we're doing is trying to mush everything together so that the court has some cover uh, to do this without having handed an election to one party. That was at least what I understood to be the conventional wisdom behind taking the Maryland case. Was there something else at play there? Well, it was a little hard to tell. It was quite surprising for them to take a second case uh, on the same issue after the first one had already been fully briefed and argued. Uh, that's not the way they usually do it. They usually hold the second case. Um, there was this theory that it, they took it to have a, a bipartisan set of gerrymanders to look at. I, I remember Linda Greenhouse on one of these shows said, ah, they don't operate like that. And you know, I tend ultimately now to agree with her, especially – with the benefit of hindsight, with, with the opinion we got uh, this week, uh, the uh, court presumably was interested in the Maryland case because it was about a single district. And it, we, we, we see in the majority opinion in Gill the idea that you should, you should prove at least some aspects of the gerrymandering claim district by district. And so maybe that was what they found appealing. So now I'm going to do the thing that I can't believe listeners who are at home on Saturday morning hearing this are going to hear math. But I, I'm going to actually ask you to explain the efficiency gap, if you would. So a gerrymander is accomplished. You bias the outcome of the legislative race by doing two things, packing and cracking. Packing is where you take the, the voters of the 
disfavored party and pack as many of them as you can into a few districts. So you get 80, 90 percent districts. That wastes a lot of, in this case, Democratic votes. Uh, cracking is where you spread the rest of the Democrats out into districts where they only get about 40 or 45 percent of the vote, so they can't win. In those districts, all of those votes are wasted. Uh, and that way you very inefficiently use, utilize their voters to produce uh, representatives uh, and waste a lot of votes. And what the efficiency gap does is simply compare arithmetically the amount of wasted votes for each party. Uh, and in a serious gerrymander, you can have a lot more wasted votes for the disfavored party. You, you take one and you subtract it from the other. You divide it by the number of overall votes cast and you get a percentage. Uh, and, you know, it's in the sort of range of zero up to maybe 13 or 14 percent is the range that comes out in the real world. Uh, and the most extreme ones tend to be in the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 percent range. And th those are historically biased gerrymanders. The Wisconsin one was up in, in the 13 percent range. And I guess one of the stories that immediately uh, flowed after oral argument was the pushback that you got about how this was just hard uh, and whether it was the math that was hard or just introducing social science data was hard. Uh, there was a feeling that you were asking the court to do chemistry experiments or something completely improbable and outside their capacity. Um, how much uh, is that a factor here that you were bringing in? I mean, what, what you just explained to me doesn't sound incomprehensible, even for lawyers. And yet you really did get pushback uh, to the extent that I think the chief justice uh, made the social scientists grumpy uh, by insulting them, right? How, how, what was going on there? Well, it was always hard to tell, you know. He did refer to it as sociological gobbledygook, producing a letter, an open letter from the president of the American Sociological Association saying, we do not do gobbledygook, <laughs> and I'm happy to come give you a tutorial. Um, but, you know, it's, when you have justices who um, are against your position, it's seemingly an oral argument, so one of the things they sometimes do is make it sound hard. Uh, and so both he and Justice Alito, the Chief Justice and Justice Alito, seem to be find this daunting and perhaps very um, hard to assess. Uh, others like Justice Breyer said it doesn't seem so complicated to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, that we were coming out of the argument uh, not expecting a, a unanimous decision, certainly in our favor. Uh, and uh, the real question was, does Justice Kennedy find it daunting or does he find it persuasive? Because he was, we thought, the uh, the target vote, the one who had left set the challenge that we were trying to meet with all of this math. And, and I guess that leads me to the question, the, the other way that there was squawking when you argued this was not only that the math was hard and complicated, but also that it was political. And it was inappropriate for the courts to get involved in political matters because then everybody was going to say, oh, the court voted for the Democrats on this side, the court, but, you know, that that it seemed, again, a bridge too far. We had two bridges too far. One was all the sociological gobbledygook and the other was this is just pure politics. And it's a strange thing because to not get involved is its own form of politics, right? <laughs> Precisely the point I was going to make. You know, you you have a an argument where the conservatives are generally against us and the liberals tended to be for us and there was no obvious reason why uh, the uh, – 
the issue in the case of justiciability, the, the, the existence of valid standards is an ideological component. But it was clear, given the prevalence of where the gerrymandering is happens to be in this decade, that the if we won, it was going to redound to the benefit of the Democratic Party. And so, I don't know. I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily the reason anybody that anybody was thinking about. But it certainly, if we had flat out lost the case, I think it would have looked very political. Uh, and so. Uh, in, in some cases, I think it's hard for the court to avoid that appearance, but certainly ruling that these cases are never going to be um, allowed to be heard in the courts would have not have been a non-political approach. Um, I think it would have had the opposite effect. So was this incredibly unsatisfying? We're not ruling. We're kicking it back. Look at it again. Bring it back to us in three years when everybody in America is friends again. That's that's a little bit of what was going on. It's just ducking. Uh, you know, we're not going to make a political decision either way. We're just going to put our hands over our ears and hope it comes back in a couple of years. <laughs> well, it is. It is true. I think that the. The decision to have us put in more evidence about individual harms rather than relying on a kind of uh, group harm to the Democratic Party is, for standing purposes, which is essentially what the opinion does, uh, put off the hard questions, at least in, in my, my book. The, they, they, the Chief Justice expressly said we're not addressing justiciability. They're not exa- we're not going to say what the standards would be and whether they're – sufficiently clear to be manageable. Uh, we're simply going to make you go back and do an almost a busy work exercise of showing, uh, showing that each of the plaintiffs uh, live in a place where there was packing and cracking. And if you want to prove up a few more examples of that around the state, maybe adding some more plaintiffs, which we'll try to do for sure. Uh, and uh, sort of look at these issues of packing and cracking, not so globally, but but more uh, district by district. Uh, in the end, as uh, the concurrence of Justice Kagan uh, pointed out, you effectively end up doing the same thing uh, by if, if you have a really bad gerrymander, there's lots of packing and cracking that you can attack. You just have to do it kind of plaintiff by plaintiff. And I guess I'm going to ask you to just explain, because I think where this gets confusing, especially the interplay between Gill and Benisek, is uh, the equal protection versus the First Amendment claims. And I know Gill, actually, the first, the first Amendment claims kind of creep back into Gill, and certainly they creep back into uh, Kagan uh, when she's writing. Can, can you help us understand just the doctrine, the equal protection I think you've explained? I mean, I think, you know, this is diluting uh, the vote. What what are the First Amendment claims? And, and I know that's super attractive to Justice Kennedy. So can you help us flesh out what that means? Our First Amendment argument, and we did have a First Amendment argument throughout the, the Gill case, and it's in the very first paragraph of our brief, uh, is that you can view this as discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause, or you can view it as viewpoint discrimination, which is a First Amendment doctrine, which is the government passes a law with the express purpose and effect of helping one political party win elections and helping keeping the other political party from winning elections because the government likes one political point of view and not the other. You can call that equal protection. You can call it viewpoint discrimination of the First Amendment. It clearly uh, is uh, – it ought to be unconstitutional. At least that was our argument. Uh, the uh, First Amendment argument in the Benisek case, the case about one district in Maryland, had a had a different flavor to it, but it was not entirely different. Uh, it the argument there was this part of Maryland and the far western part of Maryland used to be a safe Republican district. 
for a number of years. And then when the Democrats were drawing the lines in 2011, they decided to draw it down into Montgomery County near Washington where there are lots of Democrats and they made it into a more blue district. And that that change in the uh, uh, composition of the district, the, the political uh, orientation of the district, uh, was a kind of First Amendment retaliation uh, against uh, the Republican voters of that dis- of the old district, um, punishing them for not voting the way that the Democrats think they should have, uh, and so they have a, a a different way of expressing it. And I think their hope was we're going to get past all this stuff about line drawing and mathematics by simply invoking this First Amendment retaliation doctrine. So there's that. It, that is a, a somewhat different approach, and then it comes up again in Justice Kagan's concurrence, as you mentioned. And it, it, she uses kind of a different uh, set of First Amendment uh, concepts of freedom of association. Uh, whether that's really meaningfully different from what we tried to do when we said this: the Democratic Party is suffering from viewpoint discrimination because the, the government is setting out to prevent them from achieving their objectives is in the eye of the beholder. She clearly thinks they're two different things, that our, our vote dilution case was different from a case about inter- interfering with the associational rights of people who, who self-identify as Democrats. Uh, and so she, in her concurrence, uh, held out the possibility that we might be able to go back on remand and make use that language and that kind of First Amendment thinking and have a statewide claim in addition to the district by district claim that the Chief Justice's unanimous opinion uh, said we should try to prove. And does that solve – one of the things that's tricky for me is it seems to me that you should have standing to at least make the First Amendment claims regardless of where you are now. That's certainly what I thought yeah. and it seemed like uh, everybody understood that in argument. I mean if you have – if you think about it, the government sets out to decide what the people in one party get to win and the people in the other party get to lose. Why should it matter – and you're, and you're a, a group of people whose objective is to control the legislature – why should your individual residence matter? But we can fight about this. It, it, it's sort of a little bit water under the bridge. and we, we can go back and find the plaintiffs and prove the cracking on a district-by-district basis, and uh, that's what we intend to do. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. 
identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I want to talk to you for a moment about our membership program, Slate Plus, because if you're hearing this, you are listening to the regular version of our show, which is awesome. But if you were to sign up for Slate Plus, you could enjoy this show commercial free and you would have access to bonus segments and extended versions of all your favorite Slate shows. And it costs just $35 for your first year. And you can sign up free for two weeks to check it out. And that's not all. Quite seriously, by signing up for Slate Plus, you would be supporting this show and all the journalism that we do here at Slate. And we know you value our coverage and you love our podcasts. And you also know how urgent this work is now more than ever. So we need your help to keep doing it. Sign up for Slate Plus. Help secure Slate's future. To learn more and begin your free two-week trial, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And we are back with Paul Smith, one of the country's leading oral advocates at the Supreme Court, who argued two of the key voting rights cases before the Supreme Court this term. So the word on the streets is that the court can, uh, you know, they've got to make a decision about this North Carolina gerrymander. Can they decide this as early as next fall? I guess there's a standing problem there, too, right? Well, we think there isn't. But uh, there, were, there was an exchange of a volley of supplemental briefs um, Two days after the the Gill case came down, where the two plaintiffs groups, ours and uh, the, we represent the League of Women Voters plaintiffs, and then there's a Common Cause group, each filed briefs explaining to the court that the standing uh, evidence is much clearer in the North Carolina congressional case that's sitting there uh, with the the appellate papers, the initial appellate papers fully briefed. The standing issues are clearer because the there's a lot more evidence about there's a first of all there's a plaintiff in every district and there's evidence of, of how in each of those districts it's either packed or cracked. Uh, and so the reband we were telling the court is uh, not necessary. Uh, the uh, state filed a brief. Uh, my friend, Mr. Clement, filed a brief and said, uh, no, it's the same thing. They basically just tried to prove statewide injury and statewide claims. And you should make the district court go through the, 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 the sort of discipline of having to apply your opinion to the facts as they've, as they've been put in. Uh, and set it back, vacate and remand, which is often what's done when a case has been held like this for another case. Um, and in the North Carolina case, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but we actually have state legislators saying, oh, no, we need to gerrymander this so that Republicans win because they're better, right? I mean, they're, you don't get better evidence than you're going to get in the North Carolina case, right? The, the intent evidence is quite flagrant. The reason for that is they had um, been uh, held to have engaged in racial gerrymandering in the prior versions of the map that were passed earlier in the decade. Uh, and they did that because they had packed lots of African Americans more than they needed to into the t into two of the districts. Those were held unconstitutional on racial gerrymandering grounds, which is the Chauvy-Reno doctrine of excessive racial considerations. Uh, and you know the, the 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 irony, of course, is they they did that really for partisan reasons, probably. But uh, they, they did it. They used race as a kind of a proxy for uh, achieving their political objectives. So when they got sent back and they had to start over again and they wanted to maintain the same political outcome, which is 10 
Republicans and three Democrats in a state that's not maybe not quite 50-50, but you know had elected a statewide governor and attorney general of Democrats this late in 2016. Uh, the uh, they decided we're not going to get tagged with race again. We're going to be express. We're going to say we're going to just make our bet that the court will never do anything about partisan gerrymandering. We're going to announce we're engaging in partisan gerrymandering. The, the head of the registering committee said this is a partisan gerrymander. Uh, and I've instructed the uh, map drawer to draw a 10-3 map. And when he was asked why we didn't tell him to draw, uh, why why he decided a ten three map was the right map, and he said I didn't think they could do an eleven to two <laughs> map. So th- we do have that set of facts in the case. Do you have reason to believe that this will be the holy grail for Justice Kennedy? I guess there's no way to know. We thought Gill was the holy grail, but is something going to change over the summer that is going to allow five justices on the court or six or seven to say, aha, Eureka, this is the one? Or are we just going to kick that one down the road too and never decide this? Well, we'll find out um, <laughs> soon whether they even want to have a start merits briefing now or whether they want to go through a, a delay process of having the district court wade through the f- evidence and say, yes, there's this much – there's packing at this district and this district and this district and there's a plaintiff for each of those. Um, it will, so if they do the latter, it's going, to, it's going to take a while to get any case back in front of the court. Um, if they do take the North Carolina case, I mean, I, I, I've given up predicting what the court's going to do in this area. I, I think you could have made a lot of money betting against a unanimous decision <laughs> in the Gill case. And uh, there has obviously been a lot of speculation in the press that, that that kind of punt of a unanimous opinion was because Justice Kennedy was not sure which way he wanted to go. I don't know that for sure. It may be that that just the Chief Justice decided that we're going to try to just avoid the issue for some of the reasons that you mentioned before of not trying to seem political and sort of turn down the the, the rhetoric of this term. Uh, it's it's hard to be sure, not having seen any of the internal operations. But uh, uh, I do hope that and we'll find out soon that they will take the, the the North Carolina case and it does have really interesting facts and uh, try once again to deal with a problem that needs to be dealt with before we start redrawing all the maps in the country. Uh, after the 2020 census. Well, that was my next question. Is the implications of this, h- how broad is this if the court doesn't <laughs> doesn't deal with this soon? I mean, it's huge, right? This, If this persists, this is, this is, it seems to me, irremediably awful. Well, if the court were to actually ever give a green light to gerrymandering and say, we're not going to even con- consider doing anything about it. We've just completely ruled out any federal judicial management of this problem. It would get pretty awful and it would get pretty awful fast because of the the, the ability to gerrymander is much more um, easily done now. than uh, the, the The problem is, is more severe for two basic reasons. There's technological reasons, there's better computers and much better data. And the, the people are more polarized and predictable and you combine all of that you don't have gerrymanders that unwind in the way they have done in the past where there's a bit of a wave election. Uh, instead, you have gerrymanders that, that stick. And so in 2021, if there's no check, it's going to be uh, off to the races uh, and we're going to have less democracy as a result because what this does is it means there really is no prospect that that more than one party has any shot of ever controlling the legislature for the whole decade. 
uh, and then when it, at the end of the decade they're still in control, they can do it again. So that's that's a pretty terrible thing. There's no question. And and I I think I want you to say again what you said at the beginning, which is this is actually a bipartisan problem. I mean, it is sure. it is not sure. you know it 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 seems as though you and I are talking about it as though you know it redounds to the benefit to the Democrats, blah blah blah. But the truth is, I mean, one of the things we learned in the Maryland case is it's really bad no matter who does it, and the yes. impulse to do it is equally strong no matter what party you're in. This is actually an area where the court could just do the country a massive bipartisan service and create some standards, right? That's That's been our, our hope and it continues to be that. Of course, there's no uh, monopoly on um, interest in doing this practice in one party. Uh, the, it happened to be that the Republicans were in a very effective position to do it in 2011, 2010 being an extraordinarily good Republican year. Uh, plus, there was a lot of really um, careful planning to take over some of these legislatures. Uh, but in the past, there's lots of history of Democrat gerrymanders, um, California being a famous example before they got their independent commission. Uh, and uh, – you know, so uh, the, the problem is certainly not a, a, a Republican or Democratic problem. It's an American problem. It's a it's a problem of democracy. And and if I'm right about the one thing that I seem to write in every second column that folks are really losing confidence in voting generally, mm-hmm. and that you know we're going to talk about Houston in a minute and voter purges in a minute and ID and you know the the vote fraud commission, but this is just another log on the fire to convince Americans that your vote just doesn't matter, so why bother? I mean, it just seems in terms of signaling as though it's such a dispiriting <laughs> signal that the court says this is just too political to get involved in it. But like the political effect is a greater loss of confidence in the power of your vote. Right. I mean, it's not an area where I think the court, if it's thinking correctly, should just say we're just not going to do this because we don't want to seem political. That is a political act of massive proportions that makes the democracy worse. Can you tell me for one second, Paul, whether you have confidence that what what fixes this is the states? And of course, I'm thinking of Pennsylvania, which just does mm. it. Uh, the state Supreme Court says, you know what? We're not waiting around anymore. We're checking a map. Is that going to be the fix? You know, it, it, it may be in a few places. It takes a state Supreme Court that is sufficiently apolitical or perhaps a political in the opposite direction from the legislature for that to happen. Uh, the, uh, in many states, the state Supreme Courts are pretty politicized. Uh, in, you know, they, run, they run partisan races for, for the Supreme Court. Uh, and so I think that maybe that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision is going to be a, not, not, a, not, a, not commonly replicated in the future, but people will try and certainly they should. There's no reason why if the U.S. Supreme Court says we're not going to uh, let these cases be litigated under the U.S. Constitution, why uh, people can't uh, litigate them under state constitutions in the Pennsylvania case is an example. If, if we don't succeed in getting the U.S. Supreme Court to help us here uh, eventually, I think that that will be one strategy and the other will be uh, a mounting – a popular revolt that's pushing for independent commissions all over the country. And is there some steam? I mean, do you feel like that 
is a movement that is burgeoning and growing? Or do you think it's something that people chatter about? I know there are groups doing extraordinary work, but do you feel as though that could happen? Or is this another area where we're just too politicized and angry to make progress on those fronts? Well, it's on the ballot in four states this fall. Um, A good example is Michigan, where there was a citizens group, a real grassroots group, got together, went out and gathered signatures to get it on the ballot for a state constitutional amendment. And uh, without any paid uh, people, they got something like 450,000 signatures to put it on the ballot. So uh, I think there was a lot of popular sentiment. This case, the Gill case, uh, tremendous amount of public interest in it. When I did the Veith case in 2004, nobody even was aware that we were even doing it. So I think the perception is very different. Uh, there is uh, There are groups all over the country pushing for this in those states that don't have independent commissions. And so I think uh, uh, my sense is that, that that will continue to be what direction will go. It will just take a very, very long time. It's, in many states, it's hard to get a state constitutional amendment on the ballot. Uh, you have to pass it, for example, in Virginia. I believe it's true in Wisconsin too. You have, the legislature has to pass it first twice in two sessions, consecutive sessions, which – It's going to happen in a lot of places. Can we turn for a minute to Husted, which was the Ohio uh, voter purge case? And I I feel like that happened 270 years ago, but I believe it was within the last few weeks. Um, You argued that as well. Do you want to just... I know it it is such a thorny, it's a statutory case and it involved, you know, mind-numbing interpretation. But can you just quickly lay out what happened there and what the court decided? Right. This is a case brought by Demos and ACLU in Ohio, uh, challenging the Ohio practice of purging people from the voting rolls, uh, essentially for not voting uh, often enough. Uh, and this whole area of what when you can purge and when you can't is regulated under federal statutory law, the National Voter Registration Act. Uh, and it was a confusingly written law and then it was uh, it got even more confusing 10 years later when the Congress amended it. Uh, but essentially, one of the key principles of that law is that you cannot be thrown off the voting rolls for not voting, that you have a right uh, not to vote and that is not a basis uh, for throwing you off. Uh, and they also created this kind of confirmation procedure where if the state is thinking you of throwing you off the rolls for, because they think you've moved to another state, they have to give you a notice. It has to be forwardable to wherever you are and then they have to wait four more years before they can – of non-voting before they can put you off. And what the state of Ohio does is it says, well, all right, if you don't vote for one two-year cycle, we're going to go straight into that process of the notice and the four more years of non-voting. And essentially what happens is then people uh, don't vote for six years uh, and they fail to return one uh, notice that they get in the mail, which is something like 70, 75 percent of the people who get it just throw it in the trash. Uh, And you end up with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people being purged uh, on the theory that they've moved to another state when all that's really happened is they haven't voted for six years. Uh, and uh, the great irony of the case is you have a right not to vote for six years, but somehow because there's this notice that gets sent in the middle of that period, the court held five to four that we're not going to treat this as if the state has purged you solely for non-voting. We're going to say you're purged solely for non-voting and, be- and throwing a piece of uh, mail that you got from the state 
in the, in the trash. <clears throat> and Justice Alito writing that opinion makes this point. He says, we're not punishing you for not voting. We're, uh, this is a proxy for moving. This is a good proxy for moving. We're not going to second guess. Uh, Justice uh, uh, Breyer writes a dissent. Justice Sotomayor writes mm-hmm. a dissent where she's particularly solicitous of the fact that it's the elderly and the veterans and the minorities and the people in the big cities who are all getting purged. They're not actually moving out of state. Right. Uh, and and uh, the majority seems to be unbothered. They say, you know, this this is this is fine. Uh, is this another one of those cases that I, I actually think this will have a huge impact going forward? Well, what's scary, I guess, is that Ohio was the most aggressive at following this kind of a policy of, of using a period of non-voting to trigger the, 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 the confirmation process, the notice and the four more years. Uh, and they did it based just on missing one, you know, sort of one midterm election, one two-year period. Uh, and that now is the a template that others can copy around the country if they too want to engage in aggressive vote purges, which all they do – all the studies show they do disparately impact poorer people, people of color, people who have much less flexibility in their lives to vote, uh, less resources. Uh, and so it, it is a way to shave a little bit of uh, – of the electorate off uh, with a clear partisan uh, impact. We had Dale Ho on the show teeing up. I remember that. <laughs> and he he said something that I've, I've been thinking about and I guess I want to ask you about. He said the reason to be more anxious about the vote purges in Houston, even than Gill, is that that all happens under cover of darkness, that it's really um, – it's 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 very easy uh, to construct ways to purge your roles, and it doesn't happen flagrantly and openly the way gerrymanders happen. And then I think he added the even more dispiriting comment that then it becomes very hard to litigate and very costly to litigate. Is that your experience? Well, I, I think there's kind of two different things going on. The, the process that we were challenging in, in Hoosted is was pretty open. It was it was written into the regulations, and it was kind of something you could follow. And you, you, if you were new to check, you could go check to see if you've been purged or not. They don't tell you, but you you could check. The, the The other concern, and I think this may have been what Dale was talking about, is there's a lot of stuff going on at the local level where people just disappear from the voting rolls. Uh, we had people in Alabama showing up to vote. They had voted in uh, 2016. This is in the Roy Moore election, and they just weren't there anymore. Uh, we had people showing up in Richmond to vote uh, in, in 2016 and uh, they had – registr- these are the inner city Richmond. Their, their addresses had been changed to the uh, affluent suburbs somewhere. Uh, so they weren't allowed to vote. You know, none of that was actually – that was just a lot of funny business going on and that's very hard to police. So here's my, my last big picture question, Paul. <laughs> And it's, this is going to be a big one, I can tell. Well, no, I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, our election system is so broken. I can't remember who wrote it uh, after after Houston was decided. Like, why are we using mail? Who looks at mail? Who under the age of 60 ever opens some rando thing they get that sits on their kitchen counter? I mean, it, and we're using post offices and we're, I mean, the system is broken. And then we're relying on these crazy old school presumptions like mail. And then we have 
insane problems with our, you know, our, our how our voting works. And we have insane problems with registration and we have insane problems with voting machines that are all crazy. It's all just awful. And I guess I just my, my producer just doubled over laughing in the booth. But I, I guess I just think, why do we only think about how bad voting is for the week before an election mm-hmm. in November? Why don't we get ahead of this monstrous, intractable problem and fix it nationwide? I guess that's what motor voter. Well, was there, that, to the, do, the, the National Voter Registration Act was trying to do that. Then there was a, the, the the act ten years later was Help America Vote Act, and there there have been efforts by Congress to improve the system to have statewide registration, uh, state registries. And uh, the, in fact, a lot of good things were done through those statutes uh, to eliminate some of the really abusive practices that existed before. And, and it used to be that the registration was only at the county. You didn't even know, the state didn't even know who was registered. Um, and so things have gotten better in some ways, but they've gotten worse in other ways. And part of it is deliberate, you know, these voter ID problems, voter registration problems, a lot of that is, is deliberate. Uh, and, that, <clears throat> you know, and a lot of the problems we have come from the fact that the system is so uh, decentralized. We have it state by state, which also, though, is in some ways the virtue of it. It makes it much harder for some nefarious foreign power to come in and take over the system if it's, it's, it's all over the place, run by all sorts of different places, p- people of different machines and different computers and things. So in some ways, uh, maybe that's, that, that's, <laughs> that's what's going to save us. Yeah. <laughs> the upside is that they can only hack North Dakota and they just, can't get all exactly. of us. Well, I will sleep better tonight uh, knowing knowing that that's the bulwark against massive Russian hacking. So so I guess, I, I mean, the, the underpinning of my question is, do people care enough to fix this or it's just too much? I mean, what would it take if you and I agree, and I think we do, that gerrymandering is really a th- threat to democracy as we know it, that purges are a threat, that we should be encouraging people to vote. We want to make it easier. Uh, how do we get people to think that this is something that matters and that there is something to be done rather than flinging up their hands and saying that, you know, Vladimir Putin votes for me? My own sense is that there's greater interest in improving and protecting our democracy right now than there has been in many years, maybe ever. Uh, and so uh, and the, 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 the popular push for independent commissions for gerrymandering is a good example. Uh, I think that in you know the, the the there's no substitute though for p- public pressure to fix the problems and you know we may have to have a really terrible set of problems even more than we've had before before these problems get fixed but there's no reason to think that we can't do it it's not technologically impossible it's not like it's we just have to have a political will to make the system better. Huh. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to have something more terrible and then we're going to mobilize around it. Well, yeah, we that, that may very well happen. <laughs> it's not like we're doing a very good job of protecting the system from hacking. No, no, we're not. Paul, as we leap into the last days of, of the term, do you have any uh, thoughts or insights for our listeners at home who are trying to figure out how to think about 
This was supposed to be the biggest term of the year. We've seen both Gill and I think Masterpiece result in, for all practical purpose, something that looks like a tie. I know it's a tie because both sides say they won. Um, so, so what, 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 what are your thoughts about what has seemed to be? I mean, Gill was really going to be a big case. The court punted, as you said. Uh, is the court just trying to stay out of trouble because the rest of the world is on fire? That's that's a theory. I, I think I read an article like that in uh, in Slate recently. Um, very eloquent. <laughs> that that idiot. Yeah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> I mean, it, it also could be a more personalized phenomenon here. I mean, to the extent that the the theories are right that the, the in Gill, the reason we didn't get a, an up or down decision is Justice Kennedy wasn't sure he wanted which way to go. I don't know if that's true, but it could very well be. Uh, the same certainly seemed to be true in Masterpiece, uh, and so it may be that. Uh, there are certain kinds of issues, and these are these are two very difficult issues for him. I think uh, that he just uh, didn't feel like he knew which way to go, and the court ended up deciding, well, maybe we just don't have to rule. Paul Smith is at the Campaign Legal Center and argued the Gill case before the court. He has argued so many cases before the court and is just a, a joy to have on this show. Whenever uh, he's here, I'm a little bit happy, perhaps because he just sounds so relaxed. Paul, <laughs> thank you for joining us uh, this week on Amicus. It was my pleasure. Thanks. And with that, here endeth another episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is amicus at slate.com. We really try to answer your letters. Also, you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And any feedback there is always welcome. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with you for another episode of Amicus. And as you probably know, we're still not 100% sure which day the term will end. So keep refreshing your feed for the blockbuster term ending Amicus special breakfast table edition. See you then. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.